this morning we are in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. It's a spicy text. It's what I like to call texts like this, spicy. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. We're going to dig into God's Word here in a moment. Uh, my name is uh, Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. If, uh, if this is your first time here, if you're new, um, uh, welcome. We are so glad that you are here this morning. If you would, take a moment to fill out the Connect card. That's one of the, uh, the inserts in your bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, we'd love for you to take a moment, fill that out, uh, let us know. Um, how we can get in touch with you and, and get together, maybe grab a cup of coffee or something and, and uh, get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. We'd love to do that. Uh, if you don't have Bibles, there are Bibles in the back. Uh, you can grab one of those and turn to Ecclesiastes 5. The passage is found on page 320 of one of those Bibles if you have one. Um, and uh, that will get you where you need to go in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. All right. Well, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy, for this is the word of our God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are the Holy One, and we ought to tremble before your word. So would you cause us to tremble now? You are the the thrice holy God, the one before whom the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Let that be the cry of our hearts now. And Lord, we have gathered here this morning to hear from you, not to hear from me, but to hear from you. And so would you help me to get out of the way? Would you open our ears and soften our hearts to receive the truth of your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I don't know about you, but around the Green household, uh, we love the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, um, it's a series of, of fictional books by C.S. Lewis about a kind of alternate universe uh, called Narnia. And um, 
these several children, the Pavinzi children, several children kind of stumble into this alternate universe by accident through a wardrobe in Professor Kirk's country home. And uh, it's a magical place. It's a place where there are talking beavers and unicorns and witches, and it's all ruled by this lion king named Aslan. And entering into this alternate universe is, is almost like a conversion for these children. They're introduced to all sorts of interesting ideas and, and odd things and interesting things that, that they'd never even imagined or contemplated before. And obviously, one of them being that there's this lion king who is this, he's ruling over this land, this place called Narnia. And so eventually these children, all their siblings, it's, it's uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and eventually they, they meet up with this talking beaver, Mr. Beaver, and his family. And upon hearing that there's this lion king who rules this place, Susan becomes somewhat frightened. In their conversation, Mr. Beaver begins to tell her about Aslan. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's the, he, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, this morning, we, we find ourselves in a text of Scripture that reminds us that this is true of our very God and King. He is good, but He's not safe. In Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, the preacher wants us to see that when we approach the Lord and Sovereign of the universe, we ought to approach Him reverently. He's not a man. He is the one you must fear, the preacher tells us. Not meaning that you ought to be scared of God and therefore stay away, but rather that you ought to draw near to Him, but in so doing that you ought to have a healthy fear before Him, a reverence and awe. You ought to approach Him filled with holy awe and dread because while He is good, He is not safe. While He is good, He is not domesticated. While He is good, He is infinitely holy and righteous and just, and we ought to worship Him accordingly. And this is very much in contrast with how many Western Christians and, and churches approach the worship of God. We, we tend to fall into one of three temptations, either empty ritualism or emotionalism or entertainment in worship. Some fall into the trap maybe of empty ritualism kind of come to worship on Sunday morning, mindlessly go through the motions, say the prayers, sing the song, sit through the sermon, all the while thinking about what's for lunch. Or maybe the temptation is not empty ritualism, but emotionalism. Some may come to church looking to just get some sort of feeling, to get that high that comes when the band does an eight-note buildup. Hands are raised, everyone's singing loud. What the words are, it doesn't really matter what the words are. What matters is the feeling. What matters is, is what uh, Rod Rosenblatt called getting a, a liver quiver. 
But what's, what's primary, though, is the emotions that one expresses or gets during worship, not the glory of God. Perhaps some are, are tempted toward a kind of entertainment in worship. What, what some might be tempted to look for in a worship service is, is really a, just a rockin' band and fog machines and engaging videos on the screen shown during the service in a sermon series about a TV show or a pastor who preaches feel-good messages with funny sermons with plenty of engaging stories, entertainment. But really what's missing from empty ritualism and from emotionalism and from entertainment-driven worship services is that there's no reverence and awe toward God. The primary concern is not what God wants, what God calls us to in His Word, what brings God glory. There's no fear, there's no reverence or awe toward the, the God and sovereign of the universe. And that, beloved, ought to be our primary concern. That ought to be of primary importance for us. And so this morning, we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, learning from the preacher's wisdom concerning how we ought to come to public worship, to corporate worship. The big idea presented here is that our holy God calls for our humble and reverent worship. Our holy God calls for our humble and reverent worship. And we'll learn how we offer him humble and reverent worship by walking through the text, seeing the preacher's exhortation to come attentively, to listen humbly, to pray reverently, and to vow carefully. And first, the preacher calls us to come attentively. He says in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, part of what we need to remember uh, is, is the time in which the preacher is writing this. He's writing this during the Old Covenant, prior to the coming of Christ and the arrival of the New Covenant. And at that point, the house of God was literally a building. It was made of brick and mortar. It was an actual building in Jerusalem wherein the people of God would go to make sacrifices, to pray, to hear the priests read and, and teach the Bible. And the preacher's saying... That when you go there, when you go to the temple to make sacrifices, to pray, to hear God's word taught, you ought to go attentively, you ought to guard your steps, he says. And of course, we live in the new covenant. Jesus Christ has come. Now the covenant presence of God is not located in that temple of brick and mortar, but now we collectively are the temple. Together, we are the temple, the place of the presence of of God. We are the new temple, the people in place where in God's holy presence dwells. And so anywhere we gather together, it, there is the house of God. There the holy presence of God dwells. This morning in Emerson Academy, in South Park, in Dayton, Ohio, the temple is here. The house of God is here because we are here together. We're encountering the presence of the triune God. And the same is true of every gospel church across our city, across our state, across our nation, across the world this morning. Wherever those who trust in Christ gather for public worship, there is the house of God. There, the holy God and sovereign of the universe is present. And so while the location may have changed, the exhortation here still applies. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Come to worship attentively. You don't casually stroll into the presence of a holy God. You don't approach a holy God 
flippantly. Don't take him lightly. He is the infinitely holy God. His purity and righteousness and transcendence, his power and sovereignty, his justice, his perfection, his glory, his immensity ought to lead us to a state of humility and awe and reverence before him. Now take this lesson from the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. In the book of Leviticus, the Lord had just given instruction regarding how His people were to worship Him in His house. And He gave very particular instructions about how sacrifices and prayers and rituals that, 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 that God's people were supposed to employ, how they might worship Him in those rituals. He gave them very particular instructions for this about how He wanted to be worshipped. Well, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests. They were priests of God. They were called to carry out and lead the worship of God in the tabernacle. And one day they were approaching God to carry out this calling before him. And they failed to follow these specific instructions that he gave. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 tells us about it. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. And offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand. Nadab and Abihu were not false prophets, they weren't practicing witchcraft, they weren't ungodly men. By all appearances, they were righteous, respectable. They they seemed to have a good reputation amongst God's people. And yet on that day, they approached God in a careless and irreverent way, failing to follow his instructions for how he told them to approach him. And so the fire on the altar consumed them and they died. Guard your steps. When you approach the house of God, come attentively. Some of you might say, well, that was the old covenant. This sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. I mean, tell that to Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5. A story we're going to look briefly at in just a few minutes. But I want you to realize that it is true that some things have changed since the arrival of the new covenant. We draw near to God in a way that was unknown to the people of God before the new covenant. Some things have changed, yes, but God hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was holy then, and He is holy now, and He still demands that we draw near to Him with reverence. I think of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, we see a magnificent scene described wherein the apostle comes face to face with the risen, glorified, and ascended Christ, and his description of Christ is astounding. He says that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of the roar of many waters. 
And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And at this sight, the Apostle John says that he fell down before his feet like a dead man. He was so filled with awe, with reverence. He was so filled with holy dread that he fell down before his feet, overwhelmed at the glory of the glorified Christ. And mind you, this is the Apostle John. This is the same John who at the Last Supper sat with his head against Christ's breast. This is is the apostle who in John's gospel is called the disciple that Jesus loved. There was a particular intimacy there, a particular kind of affection between them. And yet here the apostle falls down in fear before him, filled with holy dread and awe at the glory of his conquering king. Friends, yes, we have a greater intimacy with God since the advent of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But don't confuse intimacy with irreverence. Just because we have a great deal of intimacy with God doesn't mean that we ought to approach Him irreverently. Yes, we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Yes, we've been cleansed from all our sin and guilt, and therefore we can approach God and draw near, but we've been forgiven and cleansed and brought near so that we might worship God with reverence and awe. As the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 28 says, we've been brought near because we've been brought near, because we've received God's kingdom. Because we've been cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. But you see, the reason that we have been saved and redeemed, the reason that we've been cleansed, is so that we might worship the one triune God in the way that he wants to be worshiped. We've been rescued from the guilt and condemnation of sin so that we might worship God in an acceptable manner. And what is an acceptable worship of God look like? Let's continue on to see the preacher's exhortation to listen humbly. Continue in verse 1, he says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, in the temple in in those days, God's people would gather to worship. And when they did so, they would offer their sacrifices in silence. And then as the sacrifice was being offered, the silence would be broken with a reading from the law of God and an explanation from the priest. And then in response to the word of God being read, they would then sing and pray and offer vows and worship. And notice the order. You listen first, and then you respond. God speaks, he initiates, he instructs, and then you sing and pray and vow. Why? Well, because you need to be aware of what God is calling you to. You need to be instructed regarding how God wants to be worshipped. You don't want to draw near to him ignorantly. That would be to offer the sacrifice 
of fools, as the preacher speaks of here. To offer the sacrifice of fools means to worship God ignorant of how He calls you to worship Him. It means to approach Him without the knowledge of what He has called you to do in His Word. And this is why, even to this day, the reading of God's Word and the sermon is so central and significant when God's people gather together. But sometimes, some of our practices at, at Veritas can be a little kind of jarring or, or countercultural. It can be a bit of a, a culture shock when people uh, attend our services for the first time. We read a lot of Scripture. Every Sunday, we spend anywhere from 35 to 45 Minutes hearing the scriptures proclaimed and explained and applied to the lives of God's people. Well, why do we do that? I mean, wouldn't it be better to kind of adapt to the modern person's increasingly short attention span and kind of shorten or do away with the sermon altogether? Why do we do this? Well, because to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. One example of this in the New Testament that might come to mind, those who are drawing near to God ignorantly and foolishly, it's found in 1 Corinthians. The way that 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 local church in Corinth, the way that they were practicing the Lord's Supper was horrendous. They were observing the Lord's Supper every single week when they gathered, but it was actually causing much division in their church. The poor were being neglected in their church. They weren't able to participate Others were getting drunk. It was, it's, just, it's awful. It's unacceptable. And mind you, the Lord's Supper is the closest that we draw near to the presence of the Lord every single week. This is the most intimate encounter with the presence of God that we have been given. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, to participate in the Lord's Supper is to participate in the body and blood of Jesus. We commune with the body and blood of Jesus through faith as we receive this meal. There's no closer encounter. We do not draw more near than in that moment, and yet the Corinthians were doing so ignorantly and foolishly, and so the Apostle Paul rebukes them in 1 Corinthians 10, 27 through 30 there. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Friends, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listen humbly to the word of God. Do not approach him or draw near to him ignorantly or proudly or foolishly. Consider this. How do you approach listening to his word as it's read and preached in public worship every week? Do you find it as an opportunity to make your grocery list in your mind? I know I'm not very entertaining up here. Do you see it as an opportunity to catch up on email, check your phone and social media and all that? Do you prepare to receive God's word, to hear God's word by looking at the text beforehand and praying that the Lord would open your ears and soften your heart to receive the truth of his word? Do you give a thought to how you approach the hearing of the word of God week in and week out? Or is it even a blip on your radar? 
The preacher would have you listen humbly to the word of God. But of course, we not only listen to the word of God, we also respond to God's word in prayer and praise, don't we? We'd only gather to hear God's word read and preached every week. That would just be a one-sided conversation. And so we sing and we pray too. How ought we to approach responding to God in prayer and praise? Well, the preacher gives us instruction there too as he tells us to pray reverently. Look at verses two and three. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So the preacher says, basically, watch your mouth when you come into the presence of God. When you speak to God, watch your mouth. He is in heaven, and you are on earth. Now, there he isn't saying that, that, that God is distant and far away, otherwise we wouldn't be able to draw near to him. Instead, he's reminding us of this, this creator creature distinction. He's reminding us that God is holy and other. He reigns over the universe on the throne of heaven, and we are earthbound creatures. We're more beneath God than a worm is to us. He's higher to us than the heavens are above the earth. His greatness is unsearchable and incomprehensible to us in our smallness and insignificance compared to Him. So when you walk into worship ready to sing and pray, offering a sacrifice of praise to God, don't do so as if he's lucky to have you. He's not. Instead, it ought to confound you and astound you that this holy and transcendent God allows you to draw near to him and speak to him in the first place. And yet he does. But as you approach him in prayer and praise, the preacher says, watch your mouth. Don't be rash with your words. Don't be hasty to speak and sing. And let your words be few. He says that fools come before God with many words. And again, I know this is countercultural to us. We live in an age of Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and Jesus is my boyfriend worship tunes. I think it was Bart Simpson that said something about how modern worship songs are just pop songs that replace the word baby with Jesus. And he's not too far off sometimes. So a couple points of application here. First, don't pray needlessly long prayers. Don't pray needlessly long prayers. As Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It's wise not to just fill the air with noise when addressing the holy God. It's better to offer short prayers with fear than long prayers with a flippant spirit. And Charles Spurgeon once said that short prayers are long enough. <laughs> and second, be mindful of the words you're saying. Be mindful of the words that you're praying. Jesus gives us this very instruction in Matthew 6, 7. And he said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't just mindlessly heap up phrases thinking that there's righteousness and godliness inherent in lengthy prayers. It's irreverent. It's self-righteous. And the holy God to whom you are praying calls you to reverence and humility before him. Being mindful of the words you're praying goes for our singing as well. 
Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as we're exhorted to in Ephesians 5.19 is a form of praying. Singing to God is a form of prayer. Augustine once said that to sing is to pray twice. So pay attention to the words, the lyrics that we sing when we're together. When we sing, don't mindlessly just offer up these words. Pay attention to the words that you are saying. Don't just let the words resound from your lips, but also from your heart. Don't be rash with your words. Don't be hasty to utter a word before God, says the preacher. Instead, pray reverently. And then lastly, the preacher tells us to vow carefully. And here we pick it up in verse 4. The preacher says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Vow carefully, the preacher says. Now, this might seem a, a, a sort of odd piece of instruction for us, but in Hebrew culture, it's not odd at all. Because often, as an act of worship, when God's people would come together in response to the word of God, a faithful Israelite, they would make public vows in corporate worship. You might be in the temple, kind of offering a, a sacrifice there, hearing God's word read and taught, and then in response, they would pray and sing, of course, but then they might also say something like, because of God's faithfulness to his people, I vow to give 25% of my next harvest of wheat. <coughs> it's actually an example of this in Luke 19. It's not in the context of corporate worship, but it's much like the kind of thing that would happen. <coughs> it's a story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man, as we know. He was a tax collector, someone hated by Israelites, most Israelites in those days, all because they would often, they were kind of representatives of, of Rome amongst their own people, and they would cheat Israelites out of their money and overcharge on taxes, keeping back some of the money for themselves. And so undoubtedly, Zacchaeus, he, he did that kind of thing. And uh, he heard that Jesus was coming to town. When Jesus came, there were so many people kind of flooding the streets, gathering about. Zacchaeus, being the wee little man that he was, he couldn't see Jesus. So he climbed up into a sycamore tree as Jesus came by, and Jesus saw him. He called out to Zacchaeus. He said, come on down, Zacchaeus. I'm inviting myself over to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus was astounded by this. And when Jesus drew near to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus responded in worship. He made a vow. He said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And this is the kind of thing that would often happen in worship when God's people gathered together. So much so that it even seems in our text here, uh, they, were, they refer to this kind of, this role of messenger. Evidently, there was this sort of role in the temple called messenger. Uh, this seems to be someone who would kind of follow up with people after they made a vow, a specific vow, and they'd call them to follow through on their vows. And because this was so common, it wasn't that uncommon then for people to not follow up on the vows that they made. So the preacher rightly warns people against being rash in their vows. He instructs them, if you vow, pay it. And if you're not going to follow through on what you vowed and pledged to do, then it's better for you not to vow at all. 
He says, don't make vows, and then later, when the temple messenger comes by, tell them that they were mistaken. I actually never said that. This shows a lack of reverence and fear before God. And if you do this kind of thing, God is liable to destroy the work of your hands, the text says. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Their fiery end in Acts 5. They were members of the first church of Jerusalem, a church where the apostles Peter and John pastored. And in that church, it sort of became common practice, it seems, somewhat common, to sell your property and to give the proceeds to the church. Several people seem to be doing this. And so a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they made a vow to do this very same thing. They said in worship one day, we're going to sell our property, we're going to give all the proceeds to the church here. They made a vow. Well, in Acts 5.1 tells us that Ananias, with Sapphira's knowledge, kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. So the apostle Peter, when they arrive for worship one day, he discerns the lie, and he says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? (coughs) Excuse me. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. In other words, you, you didn't have to sell this property. You didn't have to give the proceeds to the church. You were within your rights to keep the property or to keep some of the proceeds for yourself. But you made a vow and you have not kept it. And in so doing, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And after Peter said these words, Ananias dropped dead on the spot. Just a few hours later, Sapphira showed up. Peter asked her, did you guys give the the full amount? She too lied and she too dropped dead on the spot. And of course, church discipline doesn't ordinarily work like that. But it does not please God when we make vows to Him and His people and then fail to follow through on those vows. So the preacher tells us, when you make a vow, keep it. It's better that you not make a vow than that you do and not follow through. And perhaps this is an occasion wherein we could remind ourselves what kind of vows we've made. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized. You've made vows. You've made baptismal vows. That's what baptism is. It's a vow. You're making a pledge to God and His people that you're going to submit your entire self and your entire life to the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. It's part of why you're immersed in water, a sign. It's a sign that you'll hold nothing back from Him, from His lordship. If you're a church member here, you've made church membership vows to your church. You vowed to submit to the Word of God in all things. You vowed to support this church in its worship and mission with your money, time, and talent to the best of your ability. You vowed to submit to the discipline of the church. And more, you've made vows to God and His people. If you're married, you've made marital vows before God and His people to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until parted by death according to God's holy word. You want to honor your vows so far as it depends on you. For God is the one you must fear. 
Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? My friends, our holy God calls us to humble and reverent worship, not to be afraid of him and thus stay away, but to draw near to him in reverence and awe, for he is a consuming fire. He is holy, holy, holy. We ought never casually stroll into the presence of God in corporate worship. We ought never speak words rashly or carelessly or irreverently. We ought never think him lucky to have us. We ought never approach him flippantly or irreverently. And nothing demonstrates this like the cross of our Lord Jesus. We've looked at several texts this morning that illustrate the holiness of God this morning, haven't we? We've, we've looked at Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu. We've seen Revelation 1. We've seen 1 Corinthians 11. We've seen Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Texts that show us God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be thought of lightly. But there's nothing that demonstrates the holiness and righteousness of God like the cross. Look at the cross and behold the great and infinite holiness of God. There where the Son of God and Savior of His people suffered for the sake of our sins. Because our sin was so repugnant to God and because He's so holy and righteous and good, He could not and would not accept us in our sin as His people. And yet because of His infinite love for us, He did not, He, he, he made a way for His love and His holiness to be satisfied. And for us to be made acceptable to Him. And that way is the Son of God and Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. Jesus took on, the Son of God took on human flesh. And He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And He never spoke an idle word. He never approached God irreverently or carelessly. He never made a vow He didn't keep. He never had to sit up at night like I so often do thinking, why did I say that? I'm so foolish and sinful and broken. He never had to do that. He never had to sit up at night because he was righteous in every way and thought, word, and deed. And as the one true righteous Son of God, he went to the cross. And there he was tortured, he was mutilated, his beard was pulled out of his face, a crown of thorns was pressed into his skull, his back was whipped, exposing his bones and organs. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he was lifted high upon that cross, there to suffer, there to bleed, there to die on our behalf. That's the price of our being brought near to the holy God. His holiness requires that sin be judged and punished. But His love still beckoned us to draw near. His holiness and righteousness had to be satisfied for us to be brought near, and it was the price was paid in full so that you and I can draw near, so that you and I can actually call Him Father so that you and I can come before him together and offer him worship that is acceptable and filled with reverence and awe, so that we can draw near and offer him the kind of worship that he deserves. Our holy God calls for our humble and reverent 
worship. And the price he paid for us to obey that call was the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. May we obey that call. May we honor him. May we honor the price he paid. May we draw near to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We say that you are holy, you are good, you are just. And apart from you, there's no health in us. And so we draw near humbly. We beat our chest like the tax collector, saying, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. For we are sinners before you. But we know that you have paid the price for us to draw near with the precious blood of your son, and so we do so boldly right now. As we approach the supper, remind us of this and help us to be sobered by this, lest we offer the sacrifice of fools. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.